Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.bc. We're thrilled to welcome the ever-incredible Lee Cooper, Senior Director of Venture Investments at Leaps by Bayer to the show today. Thank you once again, Lee, for joining us. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Chris Godbon. We'd love to kick things off, Lee, if you can share with our audience a, a brief introduction on yourself. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, Chris. Excited to be here. I think it'll be a fun conversation. Yeah, I'm Lee Cooper. Currently, as, as you said, uh, early stage venture investor with Leaps, the corporate venture arm for Bayer. My background's a little non-traditional on the venture side. I, I don't have a MD or PhD. My education is much more on the liberal arts side. I, I started pre-med in college and mostly out of interest in public health and thinking I was going to pursue maybe an MD, PhD at some point and quickly dropped off that track and found myself just loving the social sciences and humanities. I majored in religion and minored in economic policy, and then found my way into biomedicine through the back door, which is consulting at a small life sciences focused firm here in Boston. And that was a great experience. And by doing that, I learned that what I loved most was the, the earliest stages of, of bioinnovation and particularly developing new medicines. And so I went back to school to study law and business. I got a JD and MBA. Again, knowing that if I was going to go back to school and I always knew I wanted to, I wanted to go deep, but also have some breadth. And for me, a legal education, tacking on MBA was a nice way to do that and set me up to be kind of on the transactional side of the industry. And that's what I've been doing since and was in business development at Moderna Therapeutics and went from there to, for personal reasons and personal motivations, we could talk about it later ended up at RA Capital as an entrepreneur in residence, started a, actually a diagnostic company focused on, on rare genetic disease. And that company didn't work out and spent two years working on it though. And it was really um, fortunate to have that experience working with, with Peter Kolchinski at RA on that, and then joined Leaps on the investing side. And, and when I'm not doing this, I, I either spending time with my family. I also enjoy teaching. I teach over at, I will be teaching for the first time at Tufts later this year, and I, I teach up at Dartmouth in, at the engineering school on, on bioinnovation. Fantastic background, and thanks for sharing that with us, Lee. If you could maybe help tie that all together for us, what's been your North Star, your common thread, if you will, across your work? It's sort of a tricky question. I, I think North Star is improving human health. That's, that's kind of the goal. Certainly resonate with that, and I think that's definitely the the vocation for a lot of our team here at, at BIOS. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. And one question that we love to ask our guests as we kick off episodes comes from Dennis Gabor here, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? When I hear inventing the future, I think of the power of ideas, the communication of ideas. 
to lead to their instantiation. Yeah. We could have all the ideas we want, but until we share them in some way, whether in a, a concrete form or even just the words of, of what they are, then we can start influencing others and changing the world. Thank you, Chaz. Thank you, Lee. And Lee, you touched on this a bit, but let's dive deeper into your transition from founder to pharma investor. So for context, can you provide a bit of background on Leaps and what your investment focuses are? Of course. So, so Leaps, as I said, is the, uh, the strategic venture investing arm for Bayer. And our focus broadly, I mean, there's always more nuance around it, but the big picture, it's platform-oriented therapeutic companies. So we invest, I'd say our sweet spot is Series A, but Series C, A, B, sometimes later, but generally preclinical platform-type companies focus on therapeutics. And it's a strategic function vis-a-vis Bayer. We strive for financial returns and we're expected to have financial returns. That's how you build a sustainable investing group, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to allow Bayer to access the latest future cutting edge technologies in the field. And that's why I joined. I, I was coming from a more traditional fund in more of an entrepreneur role. And I thought it'd be interesting to be at a strategic where my focus could be less on short-term financial metrics and more really measured by, are, am I investing in uh, in platforms that can credibly change the way we invent new medicines in the future? And, that, and that's our mandate and that's what I've been able to do. So it's been a lot of fun, I'm really lucky. And yeah, I also think it's important. One, one thing that helped motivate me to join was statistically companies that have investment from, from strategics, not just BD deals, but actual investment are statistically significantly more likely to achieve outcomes with their medicine, positive outcomes, either approved drugs or, and also reach M&A and IPO. And so being somewhere where we could really advance medicines is, is, is the hope. Certainly something we resonate with. And as we think about that context then, and you touched on this a bit, but how have you found the transition from more traditional VC and operator to yeah. pharma investor? Are there differences in mindset or approach, or is it the same skill sets just applied in new ways? I can answer your question specifically in a moment. The first thing that comes to mind, though, you, you say the transition from being more of a founder to investor. Being an investor is way easier. And honestly, that was part of my transition. The emotional energy, in addition to physical energy, but the emotional energy it takes to be a founder, to try to build something from, from scratch is, is enormous. It's just, it's so hard. And I'm really glad I had that opportunity and it's something I, I will always value and may do it again. But after doing it once I, I, and, and not succeeding and, and frankly, having little kids at home, going right back to that was really daunting. And, and honestly, being on the investing side is so much easier. Your job is you're more of a coach than a player, right? And, and coaching is hard and has its own skills, but you, you're not the one that has to go out on the field and, and, and put your body on the line every day. And so it's been enjoyable and very different than being in the founder seat. To your question about traditional, traditional VCs versus, versus strategics, I think it always, the answer is always, it depends, right? And different organizations, especially on the strategic side, can be quite different in their ethos, the way they look at the world. I think our kind of strategy as a team at Leaps, maybe it's very similar to some financial investors, maybe different from others. There are some deals that 
might be really exciting, both technologically and potentially in terms of the financial outcomes they could have that we just can't get into. So at the end of the day, I think it's very similar in terms of the deals we do want to get into, but then our strategic outlook sometimes precludes us from entering deals that we might, that I might, let's say, if I were at a more traditional VC. And a deal we do go into, we, like everyone else, right? We want to see a strong team. We want to see assets that are going to move forward to the clinic to, to impact patient care. We want to see a path towards some form of financial outcome. But there are cases where the profile, as with any strategy, you have to preclude some deals. And, and so I think that's, that's, that's the biggest impact versus, versus being in a more traditional venture group, I'd say. And thank you for that context on being a founder. As you think about it, especially considering the operation experience, the requirements around that emotional energy. In your current role, how do you think about not only strategically engaging with early innovation, but with those founders and the teams they support? Yeah, I think for me, yeah, being a founder is essential to how I can operate now and, and try to be helpful as a investor, as a, as a board member, as a, just as a friend or to, 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 to people who are, either in, in our portfolio or not, trying to start new companies, try to have empathy for what they're going through. The, it, it's such, it, at the end of the day, as an investor, you are kind of on the sideline, right? And so you don't have that day-to-day roller coaster of every data point feeling like you're accountable. And so always remembering that, I think just that alone helps you engage better with founders, recognizing where, where they're at probably, both practically and operationally and emotionally uh, at any given point in, in their company's journey. It makes a lot of sense, and especially when you have the opportunity to bring the expertise of a company like Bayer to Bayer, I think you have that opportunity to provide potentially additional support, as you were saying earlier, to lead to stronger outcomes for the companies you're able to invest in. Yeah, that's the hope. And personally, because I have more of an operating background, that's how I like to, to be helpful if I can. You don't want to step on toes of an executive team, but always try to be there for them, support them, and especially platform-oriented companies, there's always, in, in the best case scenarios, there's, there's a problem of riches, right? And I'm sure you guys see that with some of your portfolio companies, like what, what direction do you pick, right? And that, that becomes some, the earliest choices you make as one of these types of companies is what direction do you go in and what direction do you not go in? And that could define the fate. And so trying to be constructively involved in those conversations is, is the best I could do. And so talking about the portfolio a bit, at Leaps, you've invested in companies such as Gendiva Therapeutics, Antibio, Recursion, Century, among others. And so you've talked about platforms being a common thread. Is there anything else specifically that you start to look for? Yeah. And so again, this is where, as with any organization, it becomes more about the individual involved, not just the team, right? You start digging into the, the, the nuances of, of how we end up getting conviction around a team, a company, a deal. And for me, there's a few things. One thing that not all, but many of them have in common is a focus on generating novel data sets, right? Novel, novel empirical observations that are, that are architected in a way so that they're usable to improve iterative drug discovery, right? That to me is, is one of the hallmarks of a true platform, right? If you can capture whatever technology you're using, whether it's a, a tech stack of existing tools or building your own or building them, putting those puzzle pieces together in a new way or not, if you're building it in a way where you're capturing that data 
in a way that makes sense for the problem you're trying to solve so that if you succeed or fail, the next one you put through the platform has a higher probability of success, then that, that's, that's the hallmark of, of a really potentially productive platform. So that's one of the key things I try to look for. Something that certainly informs success and aligns with what you were saying, trying to increase the likelihood of bringing something innovative to patients. So I think it's been well noted that Bayer has a strong interest in the cell therapy space. Are you able to share more about that and potentially talk about where Bayer as a company hopes to innovate in cell therapy? So I can't speak to Bayer's strategy. That's not my role. And we, we, we deliberately, we firewall our organ leaps from the rest of Bayer because we want to be trusted partners to all of our portfolio companies and we, and we need to have some independence. But of course, we do dialogue a lot with the organization, again, to get their insights, to help us be better advisors, better board members, better investors for our portfolio. I think what you see public, what I could say is what you see publicly with, with Bayer is that it is becoming one of the pharmas with the leading talent and, and resource allocation towards cell and gene therapy. And they've done that through a combination of building in-house expertise and, and buying talent, if you will, in the form of really cutting edge companies like Blue Rock and Ask Bio, and those companies becoming key hubs for drug discovery and development and, and, and talent acquisition. And we've been part of that as Leaps, which is great. And I think it's, it's an interesting path for a pharma to take, right? That, that combination and giving them some maintaining independence, right? Ask Bio and Blue Rock still retain their names. They still operate as, as as organizations focused on what they set out to build before they were acquired by Bayer. And hopefully future leaps portfolio companies are, are added to that list. That's interesting to think about acquihires in that way. And you're right, the scrappiness of a startup culture and making sure that remains enabled is something I think that's incredibly important to ensuring a company remains successful even post acquisition. Though that might just be me, my view. Yeah, it's not easy. So taking things in a slightly different direction and perhaps deeper into your personal motivations, we'd love to talk about uh, taking agency of your care, something that you've been a phenomenal advocate for. So in addition to your roles as a founder, as an investor, you have the distinguished title of patient innovator, someone who's faced the personal challenges as a rare disease patient. And in response, you dove into not only bioinnovation, but also patient advocacy. Would you be willing to share a little bit more about your experience or your motivations and how you can advocate so powerfully for change? Sure. Yeah. And I, I won't go into the greatest detail of my own story, but I'll give the, the general contours. And I, I think it, yeah, I think it does feed a lot of, of who I am and my outlook on these things and, and why I even took the, the jump from Moderna into being in, in a founder role. And uh, so while I was working at Moderna, I, I, I suffered a, a near-death experience. I, I had a cardiac arrest, an arrhythmia in my sleep, and nine out of 10 times someone dies from that, an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. I was fortunate to survive and, and now and fully recover, and thanks to my wife saving me the CPR in the middle of the night in our apartment and an amazing care at, at Tufts Medical Center. Grateful to be living in Boston, where the closest hospital happens to be a world-class cardiac center. And the reason I had this arrhythmia turned out was a genetic arrhythmia known as long QT. 
So while I was working at Moderna and previously had worked at a law firm and as a consultant, very focused, a lot of my time was on rare genetic diseases. I, I discovered that I was a rare genetic disease patient myself with this cardiovascular disease. And it also happened to occur right around when my wife and I were thinking about building our own family, having children and being knowledgeable about genetics and medicine, I realized if I have an autosomal dominant condition, there's a 50-50 chance of passing on this potentially deadly disease, which is clearly pathogenic in my, in my case, which means it's more likely to be pathogenic in my children's case. It, it forced a lot of soul searching and scientific searching and, and understanding, understanding this disease in, in particular, but more broadly, how do we practically, and then of course, ethically confront this idea that we might be knowingly passing on a potentially deadly disease to our offspring. And, and can we avoid that? And can we avoid that in ways that are consistent with our, with our other values? And so that's how I got really interested in genomics, genomic diagnostics, and thinking about just how we develop, discover and develop medicines in a more holistic way. We know from the, the, even before the pandemic, from the infectious disease world, that prevention is always the, the better route than, than treatment, almost always. And, and same with cardiometabolic disease, right? If we can prevent disease, the human, financial, social, medical costs are always far more controllable. A vaccine's better than a pill. And I was shocked to learn that I did not know that this was possible with genetic diseases through by using IVF for non-fertility purposes. Basically, if you have a rare genetic disease, you can use IVF along with a process known as pre-implantation genetic testing, where you test embryos, viable embryos, for the, the pathogenic allele, in whichever parent is relevant. You, you look in the embryo, and then you only implant those embryos that don't have that allele. So you're not editing anything. You're just, and you're not looking at anything outside this disease. You're just saying, we're not going to knowingly pass on this disease to this child or a potential child. And I'd never heard of that despite working in rare genetic disease. I mentioned it to a bunch of people at work, former colleagues who work in rare genetic disease. Many of them had never heard of it. And that, that itself was a bit of an alarm bell for me. Like, wow, another area where our medical system isn't even communicating the possibility of this preventive approach, which is framed as expensive. People talk about IVF being expensive because it's like $20,000 a pop, roughly. That's nothing compared to the cost of these medicines, right? A course of treatment for most rare disease medicines is hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So if you could prevent one for $20,000, that seems quite worth it. And then of course, that's, that's the less meaningful part than the, than the human aspect. So I got really interested just in the world of genomics and clinical genetics and reproductive medicine. And yeah, eventually decided to leave Moderna and, 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 and really focus on honing some of these ideas. And, and I had to, I was very fortunate to find some thought partners over at RA and work on that there. And so, yeah, and, that, and that's kind of what led me down the path where I am now. So that's, that's, also something I bring to bear and in, in every investment that I look at as an investor now is really thinking in a concrete way, not an abstract way. If this medicine they're claiming they could make actually worked, is it something I would want for myself? Is it something I would want for my child? Is it something I would want for my mother or my grandmother? If the answer is no, it's probably not something I want to support, even if it's a really cool technology. If the answer is yes, then I want to learn more. 
And that's the most concrete way I think it impacts my day-to-day work. That's an incredible message. And it really highlights from your personal experience, the importance of keeping in mind that this is something that affects all of us. So working in healthcare and focusing on what really matters. It sounds like you put it at the forefront every day. Thank you for that inspiration. And Chris, you're right. I just want to say, it, well, one thing that's important to your original question, which I didn't quite answer and your, your response just now, is it's, a, it's, it's often about communication, right? Taking care or taking agency of your care is often about communication. But to your point about the inspiration and, and that this impacts all of us is true, and yet we forget it too often. And I'm very willing to talk about these things. And, I, and I, I always like to also just part of my personality, I always like to know what makes other people tick, what they really care about. And when you do that, it makes a lot of these conversations so much richer. And it could also make these, the world of innovation richer, right? When, when the conversation isn't just about a technology, but if people are upfront about why they care about resolving a certain disease or treating it, or why they, for, for non-empirical reasons, why they think one, med- one route towards a new medicine might be better than another, because it, it would but impacts the patient experience differently. That, that should be treated as meaningful, right? And, and not as open with each other because it leads to really more robust conversations about what we're, what we're creating. Absolutely. And as important as considering and thinking about the individuals who've put years of their lives into developing these medicines, ultimately we have to remember who they're for. And that debate of which approach is going to yield the best results really should focus on the patients who are going to benefit from them. So let's let's dive a little bit deeper into your comments on communication. And building on what you've said, you've also previously, previously spoken on the importance of practical and moral language in biotech and how we communicate that back to patients. So can you dive a little bit deeper, double click for us on what you mean by practical and moral language? Sure, actually, so much what I was just commenting on just now after your question, which is often we we do have the language, we just don't choose to use it. And that choice is sometimes knowing and sometimes unknowing. And a more obtuse way of saying it is we often make practical choices or, or converse with one another with, with a base of assumptions. But those is assuming that there are assumptions that are agreed upon is a moral choice, right? The why of why we do things can be assumed many times, but maybe it shouldn't be assumed that often. And again, a less obtuse way of saying it is, I think we, sh- we can be more upfront about what our objectives are and or be really clear with ourselves and others using precise language around what our objectives are. What's our vision for the future? not just what your, your quote unquote mission, people talk about mission driven companies a lot and that's great. Yeah, our mission is to cure cancer, but what's your vision for what that looks like, right? Like what, what, what is it, what is it the day-to-day, can you describe the experience of the clinicians, of the patients, of the caregivers and how that, what, what your idealized world around that looks like and does your proposed innovation fit into that world and why? If it does, that's wonderful. If it doesn't, then you've just helped yourself in making better choices to, to maybe innovate in a different direction. So a lot of it is about describing what we want to see in the future more clearly. And that way we can kind of more concretely and constructively 
articulate and build the path to that future. Yeah, I think that, that kind of describes it. It does. And it's interesting that you talk about it in such clear terms. I'm curious, do you feel as though your background, either education or in terms of your founder experience, has influenced that mindset? Or is it a lot of it coming from the patient advocacy side or everything together, I suppose? <laughs> yeah, things, yeah, there's a confluence of things that you can't predict. It's funny you said, yeah, my, my undergrad major, as I said before, was religion, real liberal arts. And then my, my, my dominant graduate education was law school kind of like liberal arts on steroids. And it's always about communication and storytelling. And I've really owned that in more recent years as I've matured as a person and my career has matured. It always felt like a liability. And I was insecure about that earlier in my career being in biotech, but I've really owned that more and more because it is so important to me and, and practically with companies, right? The companies that are best able to communicate what they do are able to attract people to them, right? And it's not about hand-waving and it's not about um, honesty versus dishonesty. It's about actually just being able to communicate what it is that you, what's the future you want to build and what's your plan to get there. Uh, that alone is half the battle in convincing talent or investors or partners to work with you. And so, yeah, I try to just own that. And, and to your point, I've been fortunate to have over the last few years opportunities to work, to do public speaking and, and speak with patient groups. And it's going to sound really trite, but like really listening to other people who may have different perspectives is really important, right? Because you, the best part of any, I don't know, when you go to a conference, often the Q&A session can be really annoying, right? People get up there and hog the microphone and they don't actually ask a question. They just ramble and have a comment that they, they somehow turn into a question at the end with an intonation and everyone kind of laughs. And, uh, but actually as a speaker, even those questions are the most valuable part, right? Getting up there and bloviating about something doesn't really help anyone and even yourself that much. The preparation for it does, because you're, you're forced to articulate for other people what it is you want to say. And then the Q&A and or the comments, if you actually listen, even if there's not really a question in there, you can try to get at what are people's real motivations, right? What's really bugging them? What's really exciting them? And then um, next go around, you, you have that in your arsenal, but that's probably motivating more than one person in the audience. And so I think it is really important that we listen to, to all these different stakeholders in this field. So let's think about that then. We'd love your thoughts. How do you think about life science and healthcare leaders improving their communication, especially with patients, but also, I suppose, more broadly? Are there ways we can improve outcomes? Are there ways we should think about improving training earlier on in people's careers? Are there things that leaders can do today? I realize I love that's that a question. large question, but... No, thank you. I love that question. The last part of your question first, because it's the most concrete. Yeah, I, I think to your point, I think encouraging people to get coaching around communication is really important. And some, because a lot of it is coachable. Some of it's more intangible and just takes time or, or there's some natural ability in some of these things. But like, yeah, you can coach people on, on how to communicate and you can build a team with people who aren't, who are complementary in different ways in those things, who have different, different styles, different skills, different stakeholders. They're good at engaging. And so I think that is really important. To the first part of your question, which I think is the more important part, is how to improve communication. I'll answer it by, again, wearing my patient hat more and more. And I, I, I recently wrote something about this. We've all experienced this with the pandemic, that the failures of public health communication. There have been some successes, but a lot of failures and really frustrating failures. 
And I think a lot of people have felt, and I'm one of them, that some of those failures come from underestimating our audience, right? Underestimating the intelligence or the ability to cap to to absorb nuance on behalf of our audience, whoever that audience is, whether it's a patient advocacy group, whether it's the general public in the pandemic context, whoever it is. And we just have to always remind ourselves that's often not true. People there are many smart people out there and you don't need to be that smart to, to understand a lot of these things. It's not always rocket science. And what they don't know, they, they, they don't have experience in this field, right? They don't, they don't know the language. Every field has its own language, its own jargon. Some of it's constructive, some of it's not. The reality is every field has its own jargon. People don't know your jargon, but they're certainly capable of absorbing a lot of the underlying ideas. And so you have to trust that in other people. Otherwise you end up oversimplifying and using kind of polarized or polarizing language, hyperbolic language. For example, the word cure is used all the time, right? Even when people don't mean it, and even sometimes when they do mean it, they're just incorrect. But cure is a hyperbolic word. It, it, you're kind of saying that you're gonna make a disease go away. That is very seldom the case. It is sometimes. And I think sometimes leaders in this industry believe that to get the attention of people, they need to tell them they're going to cure them. But if you read the accounts of the early days of the, the amazing drugs that came out of Vertex for cystic fibrosis, and I, I, I don't want to misquote or misparaphrase even, but some of the early patient accounts, none of them said, I feel cured. That's not where their brain went. Their brain was, I was able to go on a long walk with my significant other, right? It, it's those small but very meaningful changes in your life that do matter. Oh, I didn't have to go to the hospital six times last month. I only had to go once. Like that type of, that type of outcome for a patient is phenomenal. They don't need to be told they're gonna be cured. If you, could, if you can learn to just more concretely describe the real world impact on people's lives in a more subtle, nuanced way, that's far more powerful than the hyperbolic language of, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna cure this. And that, that's, that's where I would start in general, thinking about what's the nuance of what we're trying to convey. And let's assume that our audience is capable and wanting to hear that and hear the truth. And they don't just need an easy black or white answer. It, it's interesting. People always say you need to be able to explain something as if you're explaining it to a middle schooler before you really understand it. But I think, at least personally, I, I strongly agree with you. If you explain something to people in clear language and you allow them to think about it in their own voice or in the voice of the people who have, have had a positive outcome or potentially a negative one, we have to have both voices in the conversation, then you're starting to open it up so that it's more real world, a little less hyperbolic. I'd be curious to think about this and take it in a slightly different direction from engaging with news writers, headlinists, people who now instead focus on that hyperbole to draw attention and get clicks, as it were. Is there a way, and I realize this is going to be very specific, so forgive me. It's not either of our backgrounds, but I, I guess I just love your thoughts on how can we better think about communication. Let's assume in a one-on-one, -on -one, it's phenomenal, but how do we make sure we really put it out there in, and work with the people who lead communication to do so in the right ways? 
It's a great question, and that's one I certainly don't have. I'm not qualified to give it an answer, as you suggested might be the case. <laughs> I don't have the. Oh, uh, uh, we can always we can always cut this out, Lee. Sorry. No, <laughs> no, me, this is just out of personal interest. No, it's not about. I don't know, and I think that's a fair answer to a question, right? I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's a broader challenge. Again, going back to this notion of polarization and hyperbolic language, right? Which which there's kind of um, they're self-feeding cycles, right? It's really not constructive. I think, yeah, we'd have to all just do our small part, right? It goes back to the, you know, and what, what your first question, what does inventing the future mean? And to me, it's, all, it's inventing the future isn't like you're inventing the next, you know, reinventing the wheel. It's, it's, it's all the small micro actions and, and micro communications we use in our lives and try to just, just tell people. I don't know about you. I, I, maybe it's, okay, this says a lot about me, my sure if my wife heard this she would laugh like i'm the kind of person who will email the author of a piece and tell them i loved your piece period or sometimes i loved your piece and as a, a patient in this area i would love if next time you talked about why right and that's just my personality maybe i communicate over communicate talk too much but but i do that and because I, I want people to especially those journalists they get underappreciated it's one of those jobs right you only get called out if you mess up when they do something great, I love telling them that, right? And, and saying, thank you. I haven't seen someone write about this with this nuance before. I, I'm grateful. And I, I, do, I do email them and say that. Maybe I'm just a nutty old man prematurely shouting at the television, but I think it's meaningful. Oh, agreed. Anytime you can put a smile on someone's face and say, <laughs> this was meaningful to me, that's, that's something I think we could all learn to do a bit more. Yeah, think about it. It's all about incentives, right? A lot of these things are about incentives. And often in our, in our, in our, in the culture of many of us live in, almost all of us live in, our incentives tend to drift to highly measurable things, right? This is true in drug discovery, sometimes for benefit, sometimes to our detriment. And it's certainly true in areas like communication or journalism, right? Where clicks become very measurable, the same way dollars raised are very measurable in a, in a biotech. That doesn't mean, but the most measurable incentive, it's not always the most meaningful for the people involved. It's just the most measurable. And that's why it gets used. And so you have to remember that, right? Like to your point, smiles on my face is not, if someone said, what, is, what, what, what motivates you? I'm probably not going to say smiles on my face from other people appreciating my work. But like, that's not how I would articulate it. But at the end of the day, if you, if you get a bunch of smiles because people love something you did, even if it didn't get the most clicks or didn't raise the most dollars, I, a lot of people are likely to repeat that behavior, right? And so I think it's important to remember that the only, our, our motivations and our incentives are only, aren't only the ones that are most measurable. It's, if that alone is the takeaway from our, our chat today, that's something I think we could all do to keep in mind. But Let's take it actually a step beyond and think beyond just communication. Are there other incentives, are there other resources, are there other transitions that we're going to need to build and maintain the patient-first community we were talking about earlier in, of course, your view? I, I, I love that question. And yeah, I think there are some concrete things that we can do. And obviously some of these things are softer cultural things and 
the message often would be things is be the change you want to see in the world, right? Do, make the small changes in your own life and in your own teams and, and all your relationships. But I think some concrete things, and these relate to broader uh, conversations actually around corporate governance and capitalism and yeah, and, 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 and kind of the corp- corporate form as, as the dominant form of, of innovation in, in our world today. I think we have to think about practically how do you get the right voices in the right rooms? And I think I would love to see this industry move toward a place, even if it's organically over a couple of decades, where many companies have a, a patient stakeholder in the boardroom, whether in a voting or a non-voting capacity. I think it increases transparency and could really change the complexion of conversations the same way that having an independent board member who's an operator at a big pharma company can change the complexion of a conversation when, when a, a bunch of venture capitalist investors on the board are talking with each other. Right? I think having that patient voice in the room could really change things. And similarly, similarly at the C-suite, I'm a huge believer that, like in biology, in organizations, form fits function, right? You can tell a lot about organization when their patient advocacy arm reports to medical directors, which are in a, in a, basically in a medical commercial organization or reporting to a commercial organization or reporting to a marketing organization versus if they reported directly into a CEO or were a C-level function, right? I think that there's, there's room for chief patient officers at many companies to emerge where they work hand in hand with, with, with decision makers who are looking at budget and looking at science, looking at medicine, looking at communication, looking at all the functions that come together. Why not have an equal footing that key stakeholder, which is the end user effectively, and, and, and the person this whole enterprise is supposed to be trying to benefit along with their caregivers. And so I think those structural changes are possible and could happen organically over time. And the other thing, and we alluded to it before, is, is real world evidence improvements, right? And I think there are many companies trying to pioneer this, people out there trying to pioneer this. And there's some really interesting companies that are trying to improve the ability of, of advocacy groups and patient foundations to develop medicines or to at least use the data and the access to patients that they have to better inform drug discovery. And I think that's a really wonderful trend, improving natural history, actually understand the baseline day-to-day life of these patients will improve the way that we develop endpoints that are maybe less traditional, primary or secondary endpoints for clinical studies. So that's another really, I think, concrete structural way we can continue to kind of keep that North Star of, of benefiting patients. Both are, as you said, the second is being worked toward, and I'm hoping, similar to yourself, that we start to see those structural changes. A chief patient officer would really align every large company and almost every small company talks about putting patients first. That would really be a concrete way of doing that. So something I'd absolutely personally love to see. And if there's ever any way I can help, please Thank <laughs> let you. me know if we can make that vision a reality together. Likewise. And this goes not just between us, I think, but to the audience out there. So passing it back to Chaz now to bring some of these thoughts together and focus a little bit into precision medicine and also advances in precision cardiology. Thanks, Chris. And Lee, it's been a phenomenal episode. So grateful we have the chance to host you today and appreciate you sharing your story with us. Perhaps if you can bring it together with your founding experience, venture background, pharma, and patient mindset. 
We'd love to quickly dive into your thoughts on rare disease and precision medicine more broadly. With the rise of multidomics, tech bio, digital health, and uh, other technologies, how do you think about the precision medicine ecosystem and landscape today? It's a huge question, and I'm not, not the expert on that, but I guess what I'll say is I'm an optimist, and I'm, I'm a big believer in precision medicine, always have been. That's actually, that's what pulled me into early-stage biotech. Back when I was a consultant, I uh, was doing work for, actually, for a large pharma, looking at, at some of their portfolio, and, and learned about, it was right around the, the founding of foundation medicine, I still recall, and the notion that um, sequencing was becoming relatively affordable at that time, well, that was still, I don't know how many years ago now. 10 years ago or something, 12 years ago, I don't know, more, that that could be integrated into regular care. It still hasn't quite happened, but it's moving that direction. And I think my hope is that that's going to keep getting integrated into care, right? There's no reason why, definitely not from an economic perspective, why any patient with an elevated risk for, for any serious morbidity in a cardiovascular disease or elevated risk of cancer or any, any other type of any other disease area, really a kidney disease shouldn't be getting some form of robust sequencing and, and then, then therefore driving patients towards medicines that are better tailored for them, or at least generating the data to then create those medicines for the, for the next wave of patients five or 10 years down the line. And so I'm an optimist there. And I think, yeah, I think the, the, the dramatic drop in cost of diagnostics should continue to drive this field forward. And Lee, as we spoke on our first chat back when, you mentioned kind of something personal of interest is driving precision in the cardiology space. How do you think about the precision medicine ecosystem and cardiology? What are some of the advances that we would need to make to have a greater impact on patients here? Yeah, great question. So two things. One is technological and an area that you guys know really well. I know based on at least one of your investments. And that's an area I'm really excited about for a lot of reasons. This is only one of them is patient derived organoids for lack of a better word. There's other words people can use and, and offshoots of this, but, but the notion that we can use patient tissue to better recapitulate what a disease might look like in a certain tissue opens up a lot of possibilities for drug discovery and, and precise treatment stratification and things like that. And so I'm very excited about the rise of the credible rise of kind of organs on chips and organoids and other stem cell derived products that allow us to more accurately depict what, what a very particular variant or set of variants might be doing to tissue and cells. And also it helps us obviate over time, I think, the need for animal studies, which aren't even usually correlative and you're harming animals in the process. That's like the more technical side I'm excited about. And again, I know you guys know about that. The other one, and of course, the human problem is always harder than the technical problem. The human problem, and people don't like to say this, and I don't want to say it too brashly, is the clinicians. I think clinicians are, are, tend to be very slow to move towards new diagnostic standards of care. And sometimes it comes from a misperception around cost and the cost of genomic diagnostics is actually lower than other forms of molecular diagnostics or clinical diagnostics at this time. And that's something that just needs to sink in into the clinician community because at the end of the day, they are the gatekeepers, right? If they're not sending their patients to the lab to get their blood drawn and get this data, we're not going to have the data for the purposes of drug discovery, nor are we going to have it for the purposes of stratification. 
And sometimes it's a chicken egg problem, right? When there's a really breakthrough medicine that requires that sort of data that can drive the change. So hopefully even just one or two high impact medicines can really change it. But, but outside of that too, I think we need advocates within the different specialties, whether it's cardiology or elsewhere, at the big conferences, in the journals, just reminding people that these things are, they're easy, they're affordable, and they, they can concretely transform care over time if we use them, the diagnostics that is. Thanks for sharing that, that viewpoint and certainly echo the sentiment there, Lee, especially on the, the organoids fronts. We're proud supporters of Xylus here and we're grateful to have organoid pioneer Hans Cleavers join us on uh, Bios podcast a few episodes back for our, our audience listening. Be sure to tune into episode 38 if you want to learn more organoids here. <laughs> and some closing thoughts, Lee, as we wrap things up, some questions we'd love to ask our guests on every episode and as we kind of maybe gaze in this crystal ball years ahead for where patient impact is coming, what do you see as the grand challenges facing life sciences over the next 30 years here? Uh, I guess th three things come to mind. One is one we just mentioned actually, which is going beyond animal models. I think that if I were in charge, for example, of ARPA-H, the government's new effort to, to fund innovative breakthroughs and things like that, you talk about something where collective action could really solve a major problem. I mean, imagine we could just actually develop better non-animal models that were both more correlative, more, truer to human and patient biology, and didn't require using animals to study all these medicines. It would just be a win-win-win for society and for, for everyone. And so I think that's a uh, sort of a, a grand challenge, maybe not in the way you meant it, but one that if there were a quote-unquote moonshot that I would love to support, it would be that. It would be development of non-animal models that are highly correlative with disease. I would say the biggest challenges then uh, philosophically, I mean, th there's many, obviously drug pricing and, and, and uh, drug affordability, the realities and perceptions associated with that is an ongoing elephant in the room. The other one I would say though, and relative to, related to what I've been talking about is, is the challenge that there's a push with tech bio and, and, that, and the emergence of, of, of kind of the, the, the confluence of, of traditional biotech with tech approaches and tech talent. I do worry about life sciences becoming like entirely like the tech world with some of the negatives that have come there, right? When, when we think about the challenges we face with some of the big tech companies, I, I just don't want to see this industry get to a place where it's obvious unadulterated benefits to society are somehow outweighed by the gravity of, of mistrust that is built. I don't know how that could happen, but I could, there are many ways it could happen. I don't know what, which way it, it will or won't happen. But I do worry about that, that there isn't enough of a focus on, on maintaining trust between these existing institutions and society, because that could lead to our failure to benefit from what life sciences has to offer. Maybe as we look forward here to some of those challenges being hopefully addressed, help us paint that vision now in biotech in the year 2050, where will we be? Obviously a hard question. I think the first thing that comes to mind is that when you say biotech in 2050, I think of actually biotech meaning way more than healthcare, right? I think non-health biotech is going to be far bigger than therapeutic biotech. And so that's where I think we'll be. And as we wrap up, Lee, any closing thoughts you'd like to share to wrap up around this episode today? 
This is great. Thank you guys. Uh, it's really a pleasure. Fun talking to you always. And uh, it's a privilege to be here. I guess the only other thought is actually around the last comment that biotech is so much more. Life sciences is so much more than new medicines or new diagnostics. It's about making materials in sustainable and, and better ways. It's about growing the food of the future. It's about so many things. And that's why these questions are even more pressing and more important right? The notion of human-centered design, not just patient-centered design, but human-centered design, the notions of trust, and communication, because all the potential of this field is going to go well, well beyond medicines. And so it'll be very exciting if we could benefit from it and find a way to do so in a way that, that, that maintains the trust of society and benefits many people in an equitable way. But thanks for having me. It's, it's been fun. Thanks, Lee. It's been wonderful to host you today and so grateful for you sharing your story with us. And we've touched on some many exciting topics across your, your career and, and work at Bayer. How can maybe our audience learn more about your work, uh, any ways they can contact you, articles you can point us to, other background you'd like to share with us? What would be best? Uh, I'm pretty open book. I guess Twitter, Lee Koo 4 and look me up on I guess other social media, LinkedIn, and yeah, invite me out to get a milkshake or something like that. And it's hard for me to say no. Awesome, Lee. Thanks again for joining us. Talk to you again soon. So we're very grateful to have you on the show today. Hope to chat with you again soon. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.